Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It started as a book, or books, a series of memoirs written under the pen name James Harriet. The first of them was called All Creatures Great and Small. They tell the story of a Scottish veterinarian who moves out to the English countryside, the Yorkshire Dales specifically. It's set in the 1930s between the wars. In every chapter, Harriet drives around the Dales in a junky old car from farm to farm, appointment to appointment. He treats horses, cows, dogs. And it's a book with a special kind of magic. Through Harriet, you get to know the farmers, quiet, reserved, gentle. You take in the details of their homes and the landscape. That book, the whole series, are among my favorite reads, and they inspired several movies, and in the 1970s and 80s, a TV series called All Creatures Great and Small on the BBC. Maybe you hadn't heard of it over here in the States. It was a classic in the UK and a success on PBS. Today, there's a brand new series based on the book. It premiered on Channel 5 in the UK last year, where it was a huge smash. It just made its debut on PBS here in the US. Like the books and the TV show before it, it is gentle, funny, and bursting with love. I was lucky enough to get to talk with Ben Vanstone, who created the new show. Like the previous iterations, All Creatures Great and Small focuses on Harriet, the veterinarian. In this scene, James is on his way to a job interview. He's taken a bus out to the countryside and gotten off at the stop he was supposed to. Or at least, he thinks he's gotten off at the stop he was supposed to. He's basically standing at a dirt road intersection in an enormous, empty set of fields. And eventually, a man in a horse-drawn cart comes by. Excuse me, this is Darabee, isn't it? Darabee? Now, you want bus for Darabee? The bus for... Darabee. You don't have to talk, funny. When's the next one? I need to be in Darabee before four. No more buses till tonight. Ben, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Hi, lovely to be here. So was your first introduction to All Creatures Great and Small, the book series or the uh, television show from the 70s and 80s? Yeah, it was the television show, actually. I sort of grew up with it. Late 80s, it was sort of a Sunday night staple viewing for our family. And I didn't actually read the books until I was asked to pitch for this project. But I I remember the previous series um, with great fondness, actually. What was your, like, cultural relationship to those stories when you were a kid? Well, I, I grew up in the country, so I was... It was far more relatable to me having that background but even so the the sort of the 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 world of the Yorkshire Dales and the people within it are a breed to themselves so it it still seems quite alien to me too in many respects Uh, but no I, I wasn't a sort of urbanite so I was used to being around cows and sheep and you know, we would often sort of go on bike rides through the fields. So I, I, I was a country boy at heart, but it it was very different country where I grew up. It was sort of in Berkshire, which is a lot flatter and nowhere near as dramatic as the Dales or as interesting, actually. It's funny because there are two 
settings that I think of when I think of all creatures great and small. One is the physical setting of the Yorkshire Dales, which are, you know, not just uh, whatever English pastoral, but a very particular kind of Eng English pastoral, as you just described. But also the temporal setting is really significant and not just because it's a period piece, but I feel like, you know, even in reading the books, there is always this specter and the books are just as gentle as the television show, but there is always this specter of a world before the war and a world after the war that these were stories written in the, you know, I guess the first one, the first book came out in 1970. So they're, they're written in a, in a sort of comfortably post-war world about, uh, about a pre-war world primarily. And that is an even bigger deal in England than it is in the United States. And I wonder how you experienced that divide through your, you know, parents and grandparents. I mean, I think that whenever my grandparents spoke about the war growing up, it felt so remote and it seemed so far away uh, in the very distant past. But as I've sort of grown older, in many ways, it seems closer because you, you become aware of the swathe of history is not that great between then and now. And, you know, my, my granddad, his father fought and died in the Second World War and his father before him fought in the First World War. And so it does, you do feel very connected to that. And I think the the thing about all creatures as well is that you there's a sort of the shadow of the first world war but the looming sort of scepter of the um second on the horizon as well so there's sort of there's a whole generation that's been marked by what's come before and a generation that will be by what's coming down the track um i think it's a really interesting pivot point in history for that reason there's also a tension that is just starting to emerge in your show but sort of runs through the books, which is that, you know, I, I think if, if I was going to mark a line of, of the past and modernity in the United States, it might be around 1900. And these stories are happening in the, in the thirties, but it really, many of the tensions for James Harriet are about the fact that he is entering an archaic world, even in the context of the 1930s. And yeah. he himself is a modern man, but also a modern man in, uh, you know, in the context of a modernity that is still revealing itself. Like one of the things that happens in the books constantly is he says, "Well, we didn't have this then," and it's 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 the difficulty of that is that it, at the time that we are sort of showing on screen he didn't know that he would have it in the future either. So you, no. you, sort of, you, you, you can't quite play it because the, the book has that sort of retrospective tone and the knowledge of what comes after sort of really informs what he's writing about in the time. Um, but we have to very much sort of present the world as it was. But but even then, Yorkshire and, and the sort of the, the, the world that James goes to is out of time in a way from the from the metropolitan settings that he's sort of studied in and grown up in and it's still true today actually if you go to yorkshire it and and those places in the dales that there are places that feel that 
like time has stood still and still feels slightly untouched and otherworldly. I mean, I, I think once you go inside those places, the, the the truth is slightly different. They're all sort of got expensive paint and all been zhuzhed up very nicely and have Wi-Fi and the rest of it. But um, from the outside, there's still those places that seem, yeah, just from a from another age. The books and your show in particular are really uh, fish out of water stories. Um, yeah. They're stories about an outsider. And, you know, I noticed, for example, that you cast a conspicuously Scottish person uh, to play the the Edinburgh educated lead uh, of your show. And, the, you know, the old show was uh, wonderfully played by a Welshman. And I wonder, like, how you thought about conveying that kind of outside observer quality that James Harriet has in the context of a, a television show where you can't just come out and say it. Yeah, I mean, from the moment I sort of read the book and and thought about approaching this show, I, I thought it had to start in Glasgow. It had to start with him. You know, I, I had a, an image which we which we isn't quite the image that we captured where we because we don't have sort of 1930s Glasgow to shoot it was that you know originally when I first wrote it was that we sort of start on some green hills and as we sort of pan over them we suddenly reveal a city and we're thrown we're we're, we're not where we think we're going to be we're, we're in this place actually where James comes from because I think you have to see what his grounding is before you can appreciate what the difference is so right from the outset i was keen to make him scottish and to show where he came from so when we do land in the dales you know we're kind of with him this is this is a strange new world that we arrive in too so i in a way if we kind of just jump on in with james already there we don't we don't get to go on that journey with him to the dales so that was something that i always wanted to sort of um to show and capture it and, and it's something that's in the books as well and but it's it's in the prose of him sort of writing you know he just des describes where he came from and his background but on screen obviously we can't we don't get to look into his thoughts we don't get to just hear him say what his backstory was so it was always for me really so important to um to show those beginnings one of the things that always struck me is that the fact that he is an outsider, especially in the books, allows him to so much more directly express his admiration for this place and its people. Um, yeah. You know, in a way that he, <laughs> he, uh, you know, he wouldn't be able to talk about it in those terms if if he were himself from Yorkshire. But the fact that he is not allows him to kind of directly engage how beautiful he thinks this world is and how lucky he is, he feels to have been, you know, included in it. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think it's true for all of us, right? I think we we take for granted the things we have around us. And it's only when sort of people from the outside turn up and say how special it is that you kind of realise that. Um, it's, my, it's my experience living in London. I I've, I've, don't think I've ever done any of the tourist attractions or been around or <laughs> seen the, the things which people who are not from London go and see and then they describe it to me. And I kind of go, yeah, that is kind of extraordinary, but I've, I've not actually done it because it's on our doorstep. Um, so having that perspective, I think, is, is really important to appreciate it. 
So tell me how you cast the protagonist of your show uh, and end up with somebody for whom this is their first professional screen credit. Uh, great casting director, Beverly Keogh. From the outset, we wanted James to be uh, a fresh face, someone new, um, just like the character is you know in you know he's new to the dales we wanted to find someone that didn't necessarily have uh a lot of sort of track record behind them we wanted him to be um new to the audience as well as to the to the to the dales and within the show and then we just got incredibly lucky we auditioned loads of different people for the part saw lots of tapes and Nick, it's funny though. Nick just jumped out of the screen straight away. It's kind of I, we kind of knew it was him from very very early on, and we still had to go through the process of, you know, you have a short list and you whistle that down and then you send it around to everyone. But me and the other exec, we kind of looked at one of his first reels and were just like, "That's him. He's brilliant." and uh, yeah, thankfully, uh, we he hasn't proved us wrong. He's um, been fantastic. But it's the same with with, with um, Rachel, who played Helen. I, I remember I that was the first tape I saw of possible Helens. And right then and there, I was like, well, this is, she is absolutely perfect. And I thought that she would be great with with Nick. Um and 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 the other casting was slightly different with with Callum. He'd he'd um, obviously done the Durrells and a couple of other things, but wasn't you know I think he's done four seasons of the Durrells, so pretty seasoned, but still still very young. So yeah, they, they, we brought a whole sort of breadth of experience, especially with Sam and Anna. Um, but we got very lucky with all of them. They are. Uh, a fantastic little family actually and when you watch the show I, I, I really think you can feel how much they're enjoying playing with each other and getting on and it's it it really is true they um formed a wonderful little ensemble it was it was yeah. great to watch do you have a favorite animal that you've worked with on the show so far <laughs> i uh <laughs> I mean, I personally, I've not. I mean, got literally, to- <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you, Ben. I have on my notes here a question that I wrote, and it's the only question that I wrote out all the way. And it's, do you have a favorite cow? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I decided to broaden it to animal. Yeah, I do. I have a favorite cow. Unfortunately, I don't actually get to be near the animals very much, so I've not interacted with them on screen. I've got a. I've got a big soft spot for Clive the Bull. Um, it's beautiful. A, I watched that episode last night with my wife, and I literally remarked out loud, and I don't feel this way about bovines ordinarily. I was like, what a beautiful animal. <laughs> he is, yeah, he is incredible. He's, um, and he's also very good-natured, almost too good-natured, that we kind of wanted to get a little bit more scariness from him, and we're kind of like... He's just very cute and sweet. And, you know, do we believe that he's that scary? Uh, but he is an incredible animal. And I remember when it was wet, they were blow drying him to make sure he looked perfect. And it was, uh, he's, he's a, he's a sort of a high class bull. 
says, yeah, I, yeah, I won't say what happens to him, but he's, he, he continues through the show, so you'll see him again. <laughs> we'll wrap up with Ben Vanstone in just a minute. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, NerdWallet, a personal finance website and app that helps people make smarter money moves. Have new money goals this year? Whether you want to use credit card points to plan a family vacation abroad once it's safe or take advantage of low mortgage rates to refinance and save for your child's education, NerdWallet is the best place to shop financial products to help make your 2021 money goals happen. Discover and compare the smartest credit cards, mortgage lenders, and more at nerdwallet.com. Hey there, beautiful people. Did you hear that good, good news? Something about the baby Jesus? Mm, He's coming back. Or do you mean the fact that (laughs) Apple Podcasts has named Fanti one of the best shows of 2020? I mean, we already knew that we was hot stuff, but a little external validation never hurts, okay? Hosted by me, writer and journalist Jared Hill. And me, the ebony enchantress myself, (laughs) (laughs) Travel Anderson. Fanti is your home for complex conversations about the gray areas in our lives, the people, places, and things we're huge fans of, but got some anti-feelings toward. You name it, we fanti you. Nobody's off limits. Check us out every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your Slayworthy audio. If you're into science, but you need a break from the coronavirus, NPR Shortwave has your back. Whether we're talking about how scientists measure Mount Everest or spiders that hang out underwater, we promise you'll have fun and learn something. Subscribe to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Ben Vanstone, is the creator and showrunner of the British TV show All Creatures Great and Small. It's a 1930s period drama set in the English countryside. It follows the Scottish veterinarian James Harriet. The show is based on the series of books and the 1978 TV show of the same name. Let's get back into our conversation. All Creatures Great and Small is uh, about five main characters. James Harriet, the, you know, the protagonist, uh, the two brothers uh, who are in his veterinary practice or in the veterinary practice for which he works, his wife-to-be and eventually wife, Helen, and Mrs. Hall, who's the housekeeper of the house in which they all live. And... In both the books and the original television show, both Mrs. Hall and Helen are warm and radiant presences, but not much else beyond that as characters. You know, Mrs. Hall is there to explain Siegfried, the older brother, and why everyone likes him, and also to put him in his place once in a while with a side-eye remark. And Helen is there to be the paragon of uh, the paragon of wifely virtue, basically. You seem to have made a choice to do something else with those characters in your show. Why did you make that choice, and and what did you choose? I mean, I, I think I made the choice. You know, half, half the 
half the population of the world is is female and they they deserve stories and uh, for their characters to be fully fleshed out i think that in the the book it's because so much is internal and from james's perspective it is very much about the men and what the men are doing in their veterinary practice and he doesn't write so much about you know the women because he is mainly focused on treating the animals when we're presenting a television series we are it's 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 not like the book where you know the the, the audience don't get to see all, all the rest of the world it's it's we've got to show it and these characters are there and they're a part of the narrative journey and story um so we we I always, right from the outset, felt that we need to make sure that we give those characters real agency and their own sort of place in our world because they deserve it. And it would actually be sort of to the detriment to the to the men in the story as well if they if they uh, if James is has a full rounded character, but Helen just appears as a sort of. Uh, a, a sort of a, a, a bauble on the side or just like this sort of, as you say, the embodiment of womanhood, it sort of robs him of sort of central conflicts, conflicts for his journey. So it's so to, to have a balanced narrative, you have to make sure you flesh out all the characters in that world. So it's, that was very important, very important to me from the outset and, and, and will continue to be throughout, especially because it, it can feel like a very sort of a, a sort of male dominated world in, in the, in the veterinary practice itself. Um, yeah, it, it was really important to all of us making the show that we, that we did that and we honored those characters. What's your responsibility to the real human beings that you're representing on screen? The fact that these are, these were actual people who actually lived and have, you know, family members, Stop. Yeah, it, it's huge, and to be honest with you, it's it's the um, most nerve wracking part of it for me because we work very closely with uh, um, Alf White's children, uh, Rosie and Jim. Alf White who, being the real name of James Harriet. James Harriet was a pen name. Yeah, so James Harriet was actually called Alf White, and and his nom de plume is James Harriet. Their their children, Rosie and Jim are quite rightly very protective of their father's legacy and also just a great window into his life and font of knowledge. Um, so it was, you know, you kind of feel that you've got to be really authentic to the the characters that their father created because they were based on real people that quite often Jim and Rosie knew. Um, so, yeah, it was a it's a fine balancing act to make sure that you're fleshing the characters out in a way that is respectful and true to who they were. So we consulted with Rosie and Jim throughout, and um, yeah, I, 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 on the whole, I think they're they're really happy with us. But that was that for me is the um, the kind of greatest burden of it. I mean, I think whenever you whenever you work on a, a treasured piece of literature such as this, that's so incredibly well known, you do you do feel that weight of responsibility and. Yeah, just just grateful if um, if people enjoy it and don't hate you for it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me an example of a piece of context or an insight that those living family members gave you and your fellow writers that informed the first season of the show? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it was with Siegfried. It's kind of it's hard to get inside his head, and because you, as a as a writer, you're constantly getting. I think at times you can get too caught up in logic. You're always sort of looking for the logical through line for a character to show their motivation. It's the sort of the 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 foundation of writing any character, and with Siegfried. There, there are times when he does just turn on a sixpence and it isn't entirely understandable or that you can draw a sort of a real cause and effect. And there's one story that Jim told me about the the real person who Siegfried is based on, which kind of unlocked him for me, which was he, he said he was having a dinner party at the house and... Donald, who's the, the, the name of the, the real person who Siegfried is based on, was desperate for everyone to leave. Uh, but they wouldn't. And they wouldn't take the hint and they wouldn't go. And they just kept staying and staying after he wanted them to go. So eventually he pulled out a shotgun and blew a hole in the wall. <laughs> and yelled at them to get out of his house. And it was kind of like, huh. And they were like, yeah, that really happened. And they said that this is... And because the, the house that they grew up in and this story's based on still exists. And I was in the house with, with Rosie and Jim and they said, yeah, oh, this is the wall here. And we used to hide the big hole with the picture. And, and, and once you're sort of, once somebody tells you that story about the person that character's based on, you kind of releases you a little bit. You're suddenly like, <laughs> wow, I, I could, we could do anything. We could. He did that. Um, and that for me was like a, a real sort of unlock moment for, for Siegfried. And in this series, we don't get anywhere near to Siegfried doing anything as extraordinary as that. But it, it, it really cracked the character open for me that this was the sort of person he was. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's probably the, the one that stands out most. I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to come on our show, and I'm grateful for your wonderful adaptation of this wonderful work. It's it's really great, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And yeah, um, stay safe, everyone, and I hope you enjoy the show. Ben Vanstone. The new episodes of All Creatures Great and Small are airing now on PBS. You can also stream them using the PBS app. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here in Northeast LA, where I live, I put together an entire eight-foot trampoline by myself and then realized that the net that goes around it, the safety net, was slightly crooked, and that meant that I would have to take the entire thing apart and put it back together again. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries, for sharing it with us. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews on all of those platforms, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.